0: And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was from the historic inauguration speech of President John F. Kennedy. I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, May 4th. And moving from 1961 to today, here at One for Democracy, we're keeping our eye on five key issues this week. Voting rights movement, or really the lack thereof, reflections on the redistricting process, the latest developments on COVID in the US and in India, policy shifts around immigration, and two developments in philanthropy that could have some big impacts on our democracy in the coming years. When we look at voting rights with Congress in recess this week, there's a little bit less coming from Capitol Hill. But while Republicans and states across the country are attempting to consolidate power by stealing election authority away from local election administrators, the For the People Act is heading to committee markup next week. So we're going to be hearing a lot more on that. Reportedly, half a dozen Democrats have issues with the bill, and Senator Tim Kaine, the Democrat from Virginia, has urged other Democratic senators to submit their revisions to Amy Klobuchar, who's the chair of the Senate Rules Committee, and sponsor Jeff Merkley as soon as possible. Without the passage of the For the People Act, or H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which would restore and strengthen parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, The widespread state-level voter suppression bills will take effect and make voting more difficult for tens of millions of people, especially in Black and brown communities. But to pass the For the People Act will take a waiver or revision of the filibuster. This week, Majority Leader Schumer has said that the target for passage is before the August recess, which keeps all eyes on West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who this last week said that there's, quote, a lot of good stuff in H.R. 1, But the Democrats should concentrate on the voting rights standalone bill, and that he's opposed to the For the People Act in its current form. Rather than discouraging, though, many people actually read this as an opening to passage of some version of this law, especially because Manchin said Democrats should, quote, pass one piece of legislation that really basically has accessibility, security, and fairness in it. And I think we can. Also responding to your feedback, we're going to start highlighting an organization every week in need of critical funding support to strengthen our democracy. Today, we'd recommend the urgent need to support passage of the For the People Act. You can support federal advocacy on this front with a donation to End Citizens United or reach out to us at hello at one for democracy. If you'd like more information on supporting the critical coalitions, doing work in key states across the country on this effort. A final note on congressional voting rights developments, on the Republican side of the aisle, Representative Liz Cheney, who's the number three House Republican serving as the Republican conference chair, accused Trump of, quote, poisoning our democratic system by making false claims of voter fraud. And she now faces a second challenge that could strip her of her role in Republican leadership. This could happen as soon as next week when Republicans have their first conference meeting after recess. While she overwhelmingly prevailed in a vote to retain her role earlier this year, many are wondering whether the ongoing criticism from Trump and her increasingly tense relationship with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy may leave her without the votes to retain her role. Her loss would be another high profile moment showcasing how loyalty to Trump and his lies about voter fraud have become a new litmus test for Republicans. So something worth keeping our eyes on. Moving from voting rights to redistricting, as we talked about last week, we got the apportionment numbers, the first set of numbers from the census. And while many expected redistricting to be a nightmare for Democrats nationally, it's looking to be closer to a wash. This is partly because of slower than anticipated population change in much of the country. And we have many questions of whether Trump's efforts to add that citizenship question to the census may have depressed census numbers in Latino communities that have driven growth in the Sun Belt. But as a result of the census, there are fewer gains and losses than predicted. And among those states, some of the states with shifts have now have nonpartisan redistricting commissions. While a few have partisan districting controlled by Democrats, and in others, Republican-dominated states are losing seats. So the consensus is emerging that apportionment and redistricting could cost Democrats 4 to 6 seats instead of the 8 to 12 that was previously expected. However, with the House majority of just 10 seats, every seat counts. But it seems clear as we emerge from the redistricting first set of numbers, it's not going to be quite the cataclysm that has been predicted. Although we're all waiting for the numbers later in September when we'll get the chance to discover what it will look like for state legislatures and much more of the detail. On the COVID front, the FDA has announced that it's planning to authorize the Pfizer vaccine for adolescents 12 to 15 early next week, and states are continuing to reopen. Governor DeSantis in Florida has suspended all restrictions put in place by counties and cities, which many say is too quick and too drastic a reopening. But farther north, in New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut, announcements are that restaurants, theaters, and other businesses will fully reopen on May 19th. With roughly half the population having had at least one vaccine shot, reopening is spreading, but the growing trend shows that the pace of vaccination is slowing. We're reaching the end of those eager for a vaccine, meaning that COVID denial, anti-vaccine, poverty and isolation, and just general busyness will now pose the toughest challenges to getting the U.S. to herd immunity vaccination levels. Meanwhile, in India, as COVID infections and deaths are mounting with alarming speed, And experts are warning for a horrible couple of weeks in this country, nearly five times the size of U.S., the diplomatic crisis the U.S. faces around COVID is shocking. India's official count of coronavirus cases surpassed 20 million today, nearly doubling in the past three months. Today, the health ministry reported 357,000 new cases and another 3,500 deaths. At least 10 people died after a hospital in India ran out of oxygen, and many others died waiting to get into treatment at hospitals. While the U.S. is responding, starting to send oxygen tanks and rapid response tests, the continued outbreak and growth in India is becoming a global diplomatic crisis. More and more pressure on the Biden administration around vaccine patents and the distribution of shots already purchased by the U.S. government. It's also questions of what will this mean for the Indian diaspora in the United States and how will they engage both at a humanitarian level and what the political ramifications will be. On the immigration front, uh, Biden has announced that they will admit up to 62,500 refugees in the next six months, reversing his decision last month to keep the lower limit of 15,000 set by Donald Trump. As we talked about, that decision was met with rapid pushback and the Biden administration reversed course in less than a day. However, because of the pandemic and cuts by the Trump administration that have limited our country's resettlement capabilities, raising that cap to 62,000 is really more symbolic, even though they have started to increase their own capacity. Also on the immigration front, the number of unaccompanied children at the border has been falling rapidly. The situation is getting some relief, but there's still thousands of unaccompanied children. In March, they reported 19,000 unaccompanied children crossing into the US, the highest number since 2019. Today, the number of children in Border Patrol custody has fallen to just 677, an 88% drop in five weeks. This is a combination of a bunch of factors. FEMA has been working to convert convention centers and camps into shelters. Health and Human Services is calling for federal volunteers to help process minor cases and speeding up the placement of children into sponsors and families across the country. But it's still a very high hill to climb. This week also, the Biden administration announced that four families that were separated by Trump's zero tolerance policy were reunited but that's four families out of over a thousand children that are still unconnected to their families. They're saying it's just the beginning, but the ACLU is suing to push the Biden administration to locate hundreds of parents and create a pathway to citizenship for these families. Lastly, as we look at kind of the implications of philanthropy on democracy, two developments this week. First, a group of Asian American business leaders have launched the Asian American Foundation, with $125 million in commitments for the next five years. It's the largest philanthropic commitment ever by Asian Americans targeting the 23 million Asian and Pacific Islanders living in this country, specifically focused on mobilizing against hate and violence in the API community and building the infrastructure for API advocacy and representation. Additionally, in partnership with the Ford and MacArthur Foundations, the campaign is urging funders to pledge additional resources to this effort, and they've raised another $125 million in direct grants, huge investment in the API community that could have ripple effects for their engagement and registration and turnout in elections. Also yesterday, Bill and Melinda Gates announced their divorce after 27 years. Um, In a statement uh, late yesterday, the foundation said that Bill and Melinda would remain as co-chairs of their foundation, and no changes in their roles have been planned. But questions are emerging about how this separation will affect their personal giving beyond the foundation. And with Melinda Gates having made moves to invest more deeply in gender justice, including on the electoral front, beyond the foundation over the last couple years, questions emerging around whether Melinda Gates may follow a path like Mackenzie Scott after her divorce from Jeff Bezos as she became one of the most generous and progressive mega donors by total dollars last year so it could be some new funding on the gender justice front they have asked for privacy as they work through their divorce but when you have over 140 billion dollars it gets a lot of attention of what will be the implications for our society so thanks for joining us to hear this quick review of the key issues of the week the slowly building momentum on voting rights reflections on redistricting latest developments with COVID and immigration policy and some shifts in philanthropy that could have ripple effects in the coming years. I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, May 4th, and thanks for joining 10 Minutes on Democracy.